Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Rick Morton. All right, welcome again to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Rick Morton along with my co-host, Phil Dark. Phil, how are you today, buddy? You know, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're, we are actually recording this about a week into the uh, kind of craziness of the coronavirus, the stay-at-home order uh, here in California where I'm recording from just went into effect on Friday. So that would kind of give you guys an idea of when we're recording this. So I imagine a lot will have changed by the time this actually airs, and you may be listening to this six months, a year later. Who knows? You know exactly what's going on on the other side of this. But right now, we're kind of in the middle of it. We're not going to talk about a lot about that today, but uh, but I just want to kind of let you guys know where we're coming from right now, where we are. And uh, all that to say, my family is kind of getting into the groove of it as much as you can do that with five kids from all different personality types. And, <laughs> and, you know, the good news is, as we were talking about before recording, we have a park nearby that we can uh, go to and, you know, stay social distanced, of course, but... Uh, but get our exercise, kick the soccer ball around. And, you know, we have, I think we're almost at that uh, maximum number of gatherings. So fortunately, we didn't have eight kids. We only had five. But uh, we are not uh, breaking any 10-person rules and gatherings. So, um, you know, I don't know. How are you doing, man? I mean, I know you you also have, you know, a lot going on at your house and, and with Lifeline and, and just so many different things going on. So, you know, how are you guys doing? Man, we're good. We're good. You know, all things considered, we... Uh, you know we're uh, we have a we built built a toilet paper fort so we have you know all of the all of the block no seriously we 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 haven't and uh, we're <laughs> you know like I I really say that because I don't want people to show up at my house thinking yeah, I, I gotcha. that they're gonna you know they're gonna come and and raid us um, or whatever but no man we're we're good we're uh, you know we've managed to uh, to do well through the first week and transitioned a lot with Lifeline to everybody sheltered in place and you know, working a little bit of a different way. And, and that, uh, that's consumed a good bit of attention. Family is good. You know, kids are living the life. They, they've kind of taken full advantage of the, of the governor's order. And so since they don't have to make up work, they're not doing any work. Um, and, and so we're kind of, we're actually going into spring break week this week. So that's, that's pretty fun because that's going to look not a whole lot different than last week. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we're, we're kind of settled in and, uh, feel like as, you know, as long as, uh, internet bandwidth holds out and, uh, all that, that, uh, that we're, you know, we're kind of set to go just trying to figure out how to be, you know, good neighbors and, and to stay to ourselves when we can and to get out and do that appropriately when, you know, when we need to get out and help people and, uh, and, and so trying to figure out the balance and all that. Absolutely. I mean, what all that looks like. And I think the, the, the hope and prayer I have for all this is that, it, you know, as we're doing this, we're spending more time with the Lord and we're spending more time in, in Scripture. We're spending more time with our families to, to really connect because uh, how often, I mean, we're not going to have this opportunity again in our lifetime, I imagine. I hope, I hope we don't have another quarantine like this. Um, but to be able to really spend time with our families and just be able to pour into each other. You know, and so I, you know, I hope, I hope and pray that everyone listening out there, you know, has a home, first of all, to be able to be a part of and um, that you're able to just spend time 
uh, with with family peace and harmony like never before. Because I think the first week is everyone's just expecting, oh, it's going to get back to normal soon. This stinks, you know, and complaining. And then it gets to reality that this is our new normal for at least a little bit. And, you know, we got we to gotta get along or else this is going to be miserable. And so, you know, that is, I think, a very good thing for families because at least we know we can do it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, you know, and going back to the toilet paper thing, man, I, today I feel like I won the lottery. And, f- folks, this may not age well because you may not remember this, but <laughs> right now there is severe toilet paper shortage. And today we got a text saying, hey, Costco's got toilet paper. And we were able to go get it. Now, my wife and I had resigned to the fact that we were probably going to be using the shower for a while. But, you know, <laughs> fortunately, we didn't have to do that. All is good in the dark home, at least for a little bit now. We, but, have, gone, uh, we have gone to a new personal level here on the Think Orphan podcast. You, you guys, like if fo- folks, if you didn't think you were family before, you are now. You, you know it because, because Phil, is, Phil is talking about personal hygiene on uh, on the podcast um so we now man i i feel closer to you than ever bro well this is i'm telling you man we've had to pivot we've had to change a little bit we've had to different you know do different things here so we gotta we gotta be close or else we're not going to be able to get through this together so i imagine you know right now a lot of things are changing um we have a lot going on and i think organizationally folks out there this is something that you know getting back to to really serious right now you know there's a lot of good articles out there that have written, you know, obviously it's pure speculation at this point. But I think one of the things I've read a lot um, over the last few days is just that we as organizations, particularly in the nonprofit sphere with a lot of the funding is going to be look a little different, different things are going to happen um, to, you know, nonprofits. And, and in order to really survive this storm, we're going to have to pivot and make sure that we can be doing things and be understanding what our goals are, what our vision is, what our mission is, how we're doing what we're doing to get really, really healthy organizationally. So on the other side of this, we know what we're going to be doing. We know how we're going to be able to talk to our donors and be able to have our donors understand where we are, what we're doing. And that we need to be super clear on what that looks like internally. And, you know, I think that is something that uh, we're hoping to help you with. We're going to be creating a few tools over the next few weeks. Um, by the time this airs, uh, we'll, we'll have that information in the show notes uh, to be able to help you, guide you, um, not only through this time, but through the, uh, through the next you know, season that we're going to be in together that will help us to hopefully do this together. You know, we need each other more than ever right now. We need to be working together. We need to be binding together. We need to not have redundancies. We need to really collaborate and help each other work through this time. Um, you know, we talk about that all the time on this show, but I think now more than ever, we need to come together, collaborate, uh, work together as much as possible on projects uh, so that we can make sure the children that we are all seeking to love um, with excellence uh, are going to be able to be cared for and that our infighting doesn't keep the real need from being filled. So, um, yeah, that's something that I'm really, it's really on my heart and mind right now. Um, and it's something that I have, uh, you know, been thinking a lot about how we can do that and how we here at the Think Orphan podcast and Lifeline and Providence, how we can actually be, you know, the vessels of that. We can be helping that cause and not be a hindrance to it. So, you know, Rick, what do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I feel I was actually thinking and, and, uh, my wife, Denise and I were actually talking a little bit this morning about, um, the the fact that you know we we lived through Hurricane Katrina 
and and you know kind of went through one of those seasons where life was turned on its head before and in, in response to a natural natural disaster and displacement and all that kind of thing and and I think one of the things that we learned was um, was the need for um, the need for shouldering out with other people in ministry and and the fact that we are you know we're going to be redefining what our normal is and and life is you know substantially not probably ever going to be quite the same as it was before all of this and and there are you know there are going to be things to move through but our you know here here's the here's the great hope uh like i think god can accomplish incredible things through his people at at times like this and and so we we have the opportunity as those who are um, ministering to orphan and vulnerable children and to vulnerable families around the world to um, you know to to leverage this in a way that that our response can be you know can be profitable and and so that that means um, you know probably having to lay down some of our agenda and lay down some of our um, you know some of those things that we've um, you know that that we've that we've held on to in the past, and and to redefine the task, you know, moving into the future, and and I'm excited about um, about the things that we will learn, and about the things that we will experience during this time, and about how God can, you know, can use that for you know for kingdom good, um, and and you know a great way to start, honestly, today is by um, listening to our interview. And and we you know we have a great interview on in store. So why don't you uh, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about uh, who we're who we're talking to today, and uh, and then let's let's roll right into that because I think this is you know hugely relevant for where we are and and where we find ourselves today. Absolutely. So folks, uh, Rick is absolutely right. We got a great interview today. We got uh, Chris Kandaya, who's been on the show before a couple times. But he's, uh, he's on with Rebecca Patterson. They both work with Home for Good over in the UK. And they have a new project called the Homecoming Project that uh, they're going to talk to us about. They're going to tell us about. We'll have more information in the show notes. Uh, they have some great videos as well. But uh, they are a couple of people doing some amazing work that is really just helping people in the UK understand about the need to get kids into families and what the other work that they're doing and partnering with other organizations to actually do that. So listen into this uh, and, you know, folks, engage the conversation with us. If you want to get more information, we're going we're gonna to start, you know, sending out more information. And we have a, a newsletter. Uh, sign up on the thinkorphan.com uh, webpage. So go there. Uh, fill that out if, if you're interested in getting that as we get that going. Also, you know, engage with us on Facebook. Engage with us. Um, info at thinkorphan.com. And we definitely want to hear from you. We want to be um, helping you in any way that we can. So a lot of that is you guys helping us know how we can help you better. So please do that. But right now, listen to this interview, take some notes, and uh, just you know learn how you can uh, apply this to the work that you're doing. Well, Chris and Rebecca, it is so great to have you on the Think Orphan podcast. How are you guys doing? Yeah, doing well, thanks. Thanks for having us, Phil. Super good, Phil. Fantastic. Well, as you folks know out there, we've had Chris on uh, the podcast a couple times already. Uh, Rebecca, this is her first time. So, Rebecca, why don't you just introduce yourself real quick and share us uh, share with all of us how you 
got to be working for uh, for Home for Good. Yeah, sure. And um, so my name is Rebecca Passon, and I am originally from South Africa. And I grew up in a family who fostered um, children kind of when I was in my teens and then went on to adopt two of my siblings. Um, so I have always kind of grown up in a family passionate about um, vulnerable children and caring for them. And also my dad was a pastor. So again, growing up in a context where we're really passionate about the church, um, caring for vulnerable children, as well as supporting those who care for them. Um, so when I moved to the UK about six years ago, um, a friend of mine gave me Krisha's book, um, which is the Home for Good book. Um, and I read it and I just thought like, wow, this is amazing. Um, would love to be involved. So the next couple of years I did like fundraising things for Home for Good, ran a marathon or half marathon, um, and then was always on the lookout for job opportunities. So about three years ago, um, I started working for Home for Good. So yeah, it's been really, a really great adventure. So you've actually- We think Rebecca's amazing. Yeah. We love having her on the team. It sounds like it, and you've invested more than just your, uh, you know, your mental acumen. You've obviously you you put it out there on the physical with the the half marathon. So that's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, what what have you uh, what have you been up to since the last time we talked? It was you know probably 2017 or so. The last time we did an interview with welcoming the stranger, and um, I talked a lot about the refugee crisis that was going on and still is going on uh, around the world. So, you know, what what have you been up to? So I'm still helping to lead Home for Good, the charity we founded now five and a half years ago. And our focus is still domestic adoption and fostering within the UK. But we've been drawn again into the refugee crisis. Um, lots of unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. And we're working with some really um, good people within the UK government to pioneer some new ways forward uh, into receiving children into family-based care in the UK. And... Since then, also, we've launched a new project called Homecoming, which is right in the space of this podcast around uh, helping the church to rethink its uh, support of vulnerable children, moving away from orphanages to family-based care. Yeah, so that's what we're going to focus mostly on today is, the, is that Homecoming project. And, you know, Rebecca, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about the Homecoming project? I mean, Chris just gave us the 30,000-foot view, but can you get us a little closer to kind of what the Homecoming Project is and what it's what it's what uh, what you're hoping it will accomplish? Yeah, sure. So we believe that children belong in families and not institutions or orphanages. So um, the Homecoming Project was launched last August, and the aim is really to, to raise awareness in the UK church about um, the issue of orphanages and how children should be growing up in families. Um, and as part of that, we want to educate and equip individual Christians and churches um, to advocate for and support family-based care for children, uh, for vulnerable children overseas. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. And, you know, folks out there, you know, don't check out because they're saying they're just wanting to connect with the UK church. I mean, these, these principles that we're talking about, these things that we're talking about today— apply wherever you are in the world and in particularly we know that we're going to need to connect the local church to these issues to understand the issues to be able to really um, know how to both advocate for these issues and make sure you are furthering the the work that uh, that we're talking about here to get children into families so you know with that how are you 
um, actually connecting? What are some strategies you're having that are that are connecting with the with the local churches in and the church globally in in the UK and 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 what kind of success have you had? So I think a few ways just to chip in here we've found a, an audience to hear about the needs of vulnerable children generally uh, we've been speaking at loads of churches i get uh, invited to speak our team gets invited to speak uh, we're giving the normal kind of sunday morning worship service and we're highlighting uh, and helping the church i guess to reboot its understanding of worship worship means as we all quote from James 1 27, you know, caring for the vulnerable, caring for the widow and the orphan. And we need to care in an appropriate way. And so it's not too much of a step to help people rethink how they are giving. We did a survey of the UK church, and Rebecca's probably got the stats on the tips of her fingers, but um, we discovered that UK Christians, and I think this is going to apply globally, are more likely to give and more likely to go to orphanages than any other group of people in our nation. And it's because we're driven by compassion and desire. And so we're just helping to redirect some of that energy. That's that's our kind of uh, idea. We want to pivot. We don't want people to stop. We want people to pivot from what they're currently giving to and going to support to what they ought to be giving to and going to support. And Rebecca, do you know the stats off the top of your head, how we um, how the UK church came out when we surveyed them? Yeah, so um, we did two surveys. Um, So the first was a comparative one, kind of comparing the average British adult to um, churchgoers, regular churchgoers. Um, So the key stat that came out of that was that um, uh, practicing Christians were seven times more likely to volunteer in an orphanage um, than the average British adult. Um, And then in our church-based survey, we found that 44% of practicing Christians had given financially to an overseas orphanage in the past 12 months. So Mm. those stats are pretty high. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of engaging the church on this issue. And so with that, you know, we're talking about a lot of people who don't understand. I mean, you, the, the three of us, we work in this space all the time, right? And, and I know people, some of the people even listening to this podcast, um, maybe using the terms differently or may not really understand the different terms that we're throwing around today. So I want to make sure we're, we're, people are understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about orphanages or residential care institutions, family-based care. Can you just share with us what you mean by each of those terms so we'll make sure we're on the same page as we're, we're thinking through these issues? Yeah. So um, we kind of, a lot of people in the space will use terms like residential care facilities or um, institutions or orphanages. A lot of them use them interchangeably. Um, and there is a lot of debate on how you actually define an institution. But for us, um, we say it, it includes orphanages, children's homes, children's centres, children's villages. Um, and some defining features of institutional care will be things like um, an institutional culture where routines are regimented, um, where children are isolated from the broader community, um, where there's a lack of one-to-one attention, uh, where carers are staff members, um, are paid staff members. So kind of, yeah, that's kind of how I guess we would define it. And so, um, Chris, do you want to add anything? Yeah, just one more thing. Um, it's you never age out of a family. Mm. You need a family for life. 
but most of the care institutions I know have an exit point. It's normally when a child is 18 years old and off they go into the world on their own. And so we're looking at family-based care, meaning a family for life, that you have some group of people that you belong to that take responsibility for you, that you have an ongoing lifelong relationship with. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, and the, and the reason I, I want to make sure, you know, we're, we're on the same page here is because I do know a lot of times, you know, you hear stories of orphanages and the director will say, well, this is our family. Or the kids in the orphanage say, well, this is my family. And there's, you know, 100 kids with a few directors and rotating caregivers. And I just want to make sure that we're not using that word family loosely in this sense. As you said, it's, it's not that institutional setting. So how would you kind of respond to that if someone were to say, yeah, this is our family? What would you say to that? So, again, the rotating caregivers is a big deal. So um, just because someone is called a house mother does not mean that they have a motherly lifelong commitment to the children in that uh, institution. Um, you know, things get tricky when it's paid paid for workers because we see family-based care, foster care as a family-based care institution. And we don't think it's wrong for foster carers to be paid. But uh, Rebecca talked about the... Um, the, the children needing to fit in with systemized um, models of care. And that's that's probably one of the most defining features. So if there are care regimes that children have to kind of align to, um, I think that's another one of the kind of key indicators that you're not in a family situation. You are in a institutional context. Yeah, and I know you guys have on your on your website, and we will we will uh, have the homecoming project information on our on our show notes for this show. But there's there's a you know a frequently asked questions FAQ page that has a lot of the you know just simple questions that are answered by you know by the homecoming project. So to the extent you're wondering and you're not getting the questions answered here, that website um, has some great videos, has some great stories, has some great you know, the way they define the terms here. And I think, it, as you said it there, um, it's really that permanence, that long-term, you know, it's not a revolving door, it's not uh, a regimen. And so that's, you know, just so you folks know out there what, what we're talking about today. That's what I want to make sure we, we're mm. kind of getting, getting at there. It, none of us are going to have the perfect definition for anything. But I just want to make sure it not, that we're having a conversation where we actually know what we're talking about here. So as we as we kind of, you know, discuss that, you know, it, through that, that, that raises a lot of questions, I'm sure, in a lot of minds. And so you talked about these churches that are supporting institutions, supporting orphanages, have visited orphanages. What are you telling them about that? Are you just saying, hey, stop it? Or <laughs> is it kind of a transition that you're, you're encouraging? What does that look like? Um, I think that it, it always depends on the context and it will vary. Um, each situation will vary, but we're definitely not saying to people, you know, stop funding tomorrow. Um, we're encouraging people to begin conversations with the orphanages they're supporting um, and to start by perhaps telling them about family-based care and um, connecting them with experts on the ground who can um, start engaging with them. Um, but we know it's not an, an overnight thing. Deinstitutionalization doesn't happen overnight it takes time to do it responsibly so um every context will be different but we encourage people to start channeling their funding within 
in that organization that they're supporting um yeah and to begin conversations um rather than to simply cut funding straight away anything to add on that chris yeah yeah i mean it is a really hard message for some people to hear some people have been generously supporting orphanages thinking that it's doing good and you know for most people it is astonishing it's jaw-dropping that orphanages are not the right solution and the journey we can help people go on is to say look all of us thought that way you know this isn't some kind of intellectual superiority thing that that silly people think orphanages are a good idea now all of us thought that orphanages were a good idea until we stopped to think about it and that's i think part of the journey i think I'm, i'm i'm trying to be gracious in the way that we help people go on this journey um to say look whatever we did in the past we now know better and it's not appropriate for us to keep going in the same ways Uh, some people are arguing that it's an impossible task that it's Mm -hmm. too big a job and i want to say well you know look back at some of the heroes of our christian faith we look at people like william wilberforce he was told that it was impossible to stop the transatlantic slave trade and he did it or florence nightingale was told that she wasn't supposed to uh, go and nurse um soldiers in in Crimea during the Crimean War but she did it and she transformed the system so to say it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't have a go at it and you know we in the UK discovered some really terrible news there was this drug that was given to pregnant mums uh, to help them sleep and it did it helped them sleep but when their babies were born they were all born with um, hugely challenging um Uh, deformities it often meant that your hands were attached straight to your shoulder you didn't develop arms Uh, the drug was called thalidomide and as soon as we knew that it was harmful for pregnant mums to receive this drug it needed to stop even the most well-meaning doctor that wanted to help a mum to sleep better was never going to prescribe thalidomide ever again because they knew the consequences. And we now know the consequences of what happens to kids in orphanages. We know their chances of, of normal life after exiting the orphanages are nowhere near that the chances that a child who's grown up in a family has. Uh, we know that kids are more likely to commit suicide. We know they're more likely to struggle with mental health problems. We know they're more likely to end up homeless. We know they're more likely uh, to be exploited or criminalised. And therefore, however good it makes us feel in the short term, it's not appropriate to support orphanages in the long term. And so we are trying to help people to transition. And we've been really encouraged. Um, just the number of people that have changed their minds, people that we thought would be opposed to it because they have been supporting orphanages, have actually woken up and seen there is a better way to care for it, uh, care for these children. So we've been encouraged overall, Phil. Mm. And just as an example, um, we were at a conference recently and um, Chris delivered one of the keynote messages um, and had a conversation with um, a woman who was planning to go out um, to an African country to start an orphanage for street children. And we were able to have that conversation with her. You know, she hadn't yet done it. Um, and through Chris's talk and through engaging with us, um, she was kind of realizing like, oh, this might not be the best thing to do. So, you know, she's now going away and, and doing more research and um, talking to experts um, to think about, okay, what is, how do I do this um, in the best possible way? So we, we, are in here, we are hearing encouraging stories like that, which is great. No, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I just want to make sure people can actually 
as much as possible. Obviously, it's an audio podcast, but to kind of visualize what does it actually look like for an organization? You know, we talk about an organization transitioning, but what does it look like for an organization to transition? You said deinstitutionalization takes a long time. We've had some other podcast episodes talking about that a little in a lot more depth, so we're not going to go into super depth. But what does it just look like if this is the only podcast someone's listened to? From a, for an organization to actually transition from institutional to family-based care. Mm. So you'll be familiar with our friends in Costa Rica, Phil Dark. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's been on the podcast. Aspergren. And... Phil Aspergren. Yeah. What did I call him? Did you I said you called Phil Dark. You said it was me. So I just oh, want to make you, sure man. people know that it's not me. <laughs> it's not me. Phil, so. Phil Aspergren. That's yeah, all right. Yeah. And he... You know, he went out and with his wife uh, from uh, the U.S. to uh, Costa Rica. They start an orphanage and they have this aha moment after they've already started it. That You know, this is not the right intervention. And, and looking back, I think Phil would say, you know, what, what did he know about child protection? What did he know about child development? What did he know about um, social welfare? You know, that, that wasn't his expertise. He was a publisher. Um, but this aha moment he had. Uh, meant that he could call in some some friends uh, from a UK-based charity and they were able to help him work with churches and government to start a, a kind of nationwide fostering program. Uh, I wish they'd called it Foster Rica, um, <laughs> but apparently that doesn't quite work <laughs> in its context. Uh, so they called it Casa Viva, which I think works better in it's Spanish, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it is possible. That's what I'm encouraged by. And it is possible for people that have started orphanages with the best intentions to repurpose their workforce, to um, to, to become transition centers. Uh, as we know, Phil, most of the children in orphanages around the world have living parents. They don't mm -hmm. need to be in orphanages. It's often poverty that's the driver. Um, and so we can help to wrap around some of those families and transition children in an appropriate way back to mum and dad. Or if it's not mum and dad, maybe to aunties and uncles and grandparents um, or at worst, you know, or foster, local fostering or adoption. And I, I think that's that journey is possible because it's been trod, trod many times before and Casa Viva is a great example. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also important just to say that there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, which many people, um, they want a one-size-fits-all answer, but it looks different for every organization. So, yeah, it might look like fa focusing on family reunification. It might look like focusing on, um, you know, getting kids into foster care. Um so, yeah, it, it, it will look different. Absolutely. I think that's very important to hear, uh, folks out there. There is not one magic bullet, no one size fits all. In fact, I think the last episode we just aired was Brandon Stiver with One Million Home. They're a good example if you're kind of wondering a little bit more about, you know, what does this look like? They're, they're doing it different ways in different countries based on organizations that know those countries well. And the, the key, I think, is to really understand that it's getting children into families. And that's what does that look like in each in each setting, in each government that has different regulations and rules. There's no one size fits all. And so that that's I think if there's nothing else you, you hear about that, it's we need to get children into families and we need to do it in a way that is that works in that setting. And so, you know, with that, what what if at all, you know, and you, you had a an article we'll we'll put in the in the show notes, Krish, but it, the Christian case against the orphanage. Um, that had a lot of, you know, 
it, it went far and wide. Um, but what if it all should? Is there a role for orphanages, and and what what would that be? I think the best way I can think about it is, um, you know, if if you found a child uh, wandering lost on the streets, you know, maybe they were injured, maybe they were, were looking hungry. If you found a child like that um, in, in a Western country, you might take them to a hospital or a police station. Uh, that's an appropriate institution for them to go to uh, to receive help and care and attention. Um, but if you visited that hospital or that police station five years later and that child was still there, still in the room, um, something would have gone seriously wrong. So I think that that's probably my most clear way that orphanages may be used at best as temporary institutions to help children transition. So, you know, if you're dealing with street children um, and, you know, a lot of street children, I was talking to someone uh, Two days ago from Sierra Leone, a lot of the street children in Sierra Leone are there because they've been separated from their family, have no way to get in contact, no way to get back. So an orphanage might be useful as a temporary institution. I'm talking weeks or maximum months uh, where a child can be housed until they can be reunited with their family. Uh, but just, just one other way of thinking about this, I was speaking to a friend who was an aid worker in Rwanda during the genocide. And in Rwanda, that, you'd have thought that would have been a case to use an orphanage. But even in that context, with the genocide going on, with a million people getting killed in 100 days, they tried to use emergency foster care rather than orphanages. So, mm. you know, I, I think there's a limited use uh, for orphanages, and they are at best temporary institutions while children can be rehomed in families. Yeah, I think that's a, a very... That's that's a good summary of what a lot of the people and most people in the in the space right now are, are talking about and and figuring out what that looks like and how we get there. Um, so with that, obviously, as you said, I, I can't remember if it was the 40 percent number was how many people have visited orphanages. But that's the other part of this that, you know, the, the visiting uh, the orphanages on mission trips or the, you know, the. The, the tourism side of things, the, the volunteerism that we've been talking about over the last, you know, couple of years, something we need to stop. You know, what what does that look like? Because obviously that's a way that a lot of people understand the plight and get captured by what, you know, God's doing around the world uh, is, is the one side of mission trips that we hear about and, and missionaries. But, uh, you know, why, uh, you know, what would you advise and why on with regards to visiting orphan and vulnerable children around the world? So we've developed um, and created quite a lot of guidance around this. Um, so we have um, a short-term missions and volunteering guide as well as um, videos and other content on our website. Um, but basically what we would say to people is all children in orphanages have suffered trauma. Um, you know, they've been separated from family. They probably have... Um, an attachment disorder. Um, so to have a continuous stream of volunteers coming in and loving the kids and then leaving the kids, um, that can have a really severe impact um, on children emotionally and psychologically. Um, so we would we would gently discourage people and sometimes strongly discourage people to um, volunteer in orphanages. Um, so we do give a lot of advice on how to how to help in other ways um, and generally we would say you know 
don't interact with children, rather volunteer with a family-based or community-based charity, um, use the skills that you have um, to help that charity in, in ways that they're needing help rather than directly engaging with children. That's right. Rebecca's produced some really excellent resources to help with that. Um, we met one uh, young boy uh, who had been in a Thai orphanage and he had a hearing impediment, he was deaf um, and he had been visited by 500 different volunteers mm. uh, over the course of his time. And you think, how is that good for a child? I'm sure the, the volunteers that came and played with him felt a lot better about what they were, you know, their day, but how is it good for him? This attachment that he made with someone uh, for an afternoon and then it was lost and broken again. And so, you know, sometimes we say that there's never really a good reason to volunteer with vulnerable children in orphanages, um, but you can volunteer on behalf of. And so, you know, you can fundraise to help um, people transition from orphanages to family-based care. You can advocate. There's a lot of political work that needs to be done uh, in order to change, you know, governmental mindsets. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things you can do that don't involve you going. Mm-hmm. And when we go, it's often more about us and what we're going to get out of it than what's best for children. And that's got to be the whole mindset of service. We're supposed to be serving others, not ourselves. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because I've I've had a lot of conversations with students who've gone out and volunteered in orphanages, um, and they've come back <coughs> like, you know, this this wasn't a good thing. So it's been interesting to have those conversations with people who've who've come back recently. Um, and now they're becoming advocates kind of against orphanage volunteering, saying, you know, I've, I've done it, but this wasn't this wasn't the best for these children. So let's yeah. let's think about this differently. That's right. One of our best advocates is a young lady called Ella, and she went to volunteer in an orphanage and was allowed to take one of the babies home for a couple of days. Oh, wow. And you think, you know, that's just totally inappropriate. The, the child protection things were out the window. It wasn't good for the baby. Ella now thinks it obviously wasn't good for her. Um, and and that negative experience has turned her into an amazing advocate on behalf of um, the move to family-based care. Definitely. Now, so, in, you know, and one of the things, too, that about this project, we're going to, we got, we got to move on right now. We could talk about that for a lot longer, I've no doubt. But, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about on this show is collaboration and working with others. And, you know, I know that you guys with the Homecoming Project are, are working in partnership, as it talks about on your website, with the Rethink Orphanages Coalition of Charities. Um, you can find out what those are if you go on the website. But what does the partnership look like in the, in the context of this work? How are you actually working together uh, to reach the goals? That's great. I mean, there are people that have been in this field for far longer than us, and we we claim no expertise. Uh, so we love combining and bringing what we are good at uh, into the wider sphere. I, I'd say we're co- we're collaborating in two different ways. I, if I talk about what we're doing in the UK, and then maybe Rebecca talks about the global pledge, that might be the best way forward. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, there are a number of different uh, deinstitutionalisation charities. So people like Lumos, Hope and Homes. Um, Save the Children, UNICEF, uh, lots of people working in this space. And um, sometimes it can be a bit tribal, sometimes it's competitive, 
and you know these many of these organizations are secular and they don't really speak church well they don't understand how christians think or work so in this context we have a bit of specialization we can help to translate some of the messaging of the word of secular movement to the church uh, because sometimes christians put up a little barrier they say everyone else's orphanages are a problem but christian ones are different and we need to help get under that kind of barrier um, but also there's a whole this is such a big job you know eight million children in orphanages some would say around the world um it's a big journey to transition so we need to be collaborating and there are three different levels of things i think there needs to be better research um you know we, we want to know uh, what works, uh, what's effective, what some of the challenges are, and that's a lot better when you do it together. Uh, we've also found opportunities for joint advocacy. Uh, our version of USAID is called DFID, the Department for International Development, and they don't want to meet eight different deinstitutionalization charities. They don't want to write eight different checks. They want to work with a coalition, a wide coalition, and they want to write one big check rather than eight little ones. Mm. So they prefer it when we work together. And same with other forms of political advocacy. When we're working in coalition, there's so much more power. Uh, and the third thing is this behavior change. We need people to make it unthinkable that you would go and volunteer in an orphanage, unthinkable that you'd uh, deliberately start a new orphanage, unthinkable that you'd welcome an orphan choir to come and sing in your church. Um, so all those things take, that's collective action. You need a whole bunch of people to work together to make that happen. So those are the ways that we've been trying to work with UK headquarters charities um, to try and bring change. But Rebecca, why don't you talk about the um, Global Pledge? Yeah, so we're kind of at the beginning of um, something that's really exciting and we're calling it the Global Church Pledge. And it's basically kind of very top level, um, a statement affirming that family is best for children. And we as the church want to advocate for that, um, particularly for children in orphanages. Um, so the idea is to get as many church leaders and organisations on board signing the pledge um, and then the, the hope is that behavior change will then follow. So as, you know, top top level and senior church leaders sign this pledge, um, we can then engage with churches on the ground to say, this is the commitment that's been made. How can we help you um, bring about the change? Um, so do watch the space because that's going to be really exciting in the coming months. Yeah, we love working with Ellie Oswald at Faith to Action. She's mm -hmm. been brilliant and you know this global partnership is you know it's definitely the way forward yeah absolutely we just had ellie on a couple couple episodes uh, episodes ago and uh you know she talked about that as well and i know there's a meeting coming up it'll it'll already have happened uh once this airs but uh you know it's continuing to to be a conversation where we're bringing people together to work together and that's the only way this is going to happen so i get i get really excited as as you folks know out there uh, who listen to this uh, this show, you know that that excites me more than anything to hear about people working together, as you said, to do what you're really good at and let other people do what they're really good at. And that's how we're going to really move the ball forward. Um, so, you know, as we kind of work to wrap the, up this interview, uh, there's, there's a couple more, you know, a couple questions we ask everyone that, you know, we'll kind of figure out how to do that with both of you. But uh, one of the things, you know, as we're interview, as we're doing this interview, the world is in a very, very crazy time. You know, this, this, the, the coronavirus has completely changed our lives. 
Um, you know, right now, a lot of us are confined to our homes with our families, which, you know, isn't a terrible thing from the standpoint of being able to spend a lot more time with our families. Um, but, you know, as we are talking about this, we know a lot of kids around the world don't have families. We know that there are caregivers who are going to be getting sick. We know that there are, you know, the, the economy is having, you know, issues that are going to impact nonprofits. How do you feel, you know, and especially you, Chris, who, have, who has seen a lot of the stuff on the ground around the world, you know, with different, whether, you know, different crises that come up. How do you believe this coronavirus uh, outbreak and resulting issues is really going to impact how we care for OVC and, and really what this space is going to look like over the next you know, few years? Mm. Well, this coronavirus seems to bring out the worst in us uh, when we go and you know panic buy all the food from the food from the shops uh, when people are kind of you know, seeming not to care about the elderly and carrying on as if. Um, this virus won't affect us, but it's also bringing out the best in us. I've seen, you know, an, an increase in neighbourliness, in you know, community engagement, and people looking out for one another. Um, so I'm, my hope is that the same will be true with um, the, on the good side, uh, how people care for vulnerable children. In the UK, we're seeing a particular challenge because many of the foster parents in the UK in the UK care system are uh, older. Um, mm. You know, it, it's it's over 65s, so I think, between like 8% of all the carers in the UK, and we haven't replaced them with kind of newer, younger blood. And so those older uh, carers are at risk. They need to socially isolate. And uh, we heard of one um, uh, city that lost 20 households from fostering last week because mm. of the corona need to self-isolate. Um, so there is a massive need for Christians and, and other groups to step up into this gap right now because there are vulnerable children that are not going to be living in a house in a, with a family unless we do so very quickly. So I think corona is going to have a huge impact on us. And my prayer is that it, it brings the best out of us. It shows, uh, I guess, an empathy uh, with many people around the world that have been struggling with this kind of thing for a long time. You know, I was thinking about all the people that in, lived in Syria mm-hmm. um, who couldn't go outside because they were going to get bombed and, you know, was shot. And you think, our um, little version of that, our self-isolation uh, um, is so luxurious compared to them. But just the little bit of pain it's causing us is maybe a good opportunity for us to empathize with vulnerable people and vulnerable children around the world. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Rebecca, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, I've also been hearing stories of um, how it's affecting um, international adoption as well as volunteering in orphanages. Um, So I think, yeah, it's both, I think even orphanages are going to have to figure out new ways of of running, which could in the long term be a good thing um, in that they're going to not be, they're not going to be able to accept volunteers coming in. Um, So yeah, I think there's also opportunity in this time to try and um, help institutions transition into better ways um, of caring for children. Yeah, you know, That's really helpful, actually. That's going to have a financial impact, isn't it? Just the volunteers not going, not making those connections, the, tour, the orphan choirs not touring. Um, maybe that's going to force some of the orphanages to rethink their financial model and... and my prayer would be it means they move towards family reunification. 
exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's 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 so much good that can come out of it. Like you were talking about, I talked to my kids about that the other day. That you know we can't control these circumstances, but we can control our response to them. And, you know, that is something that I'm hopeful. Uh, I really am hopeful that we will come out of this stronger and better um, and really realizing that, you know, we do need each other. Right. For a lot of people who are, you know, realizing now that when we isolate, we're, you know, we're built for community and uh, mm. it's it's really hard. It's really hard. You know, we have our families. Yes. But we're we also know we need others. And we're, we're getting creative. Fortunately, we have technology. If this would have happened 30 years ago, I don't know what we would have done with it. But, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting time. So I know that uh, we need to wrap this up. But uh, you know, I definitely want to hear from both of you on you know, what, what have you read, listened to, or, or watched recently that has really impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Rebecca, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so I recently read a book called Children Belong in Families by Mick Peace. Um, so he runs a charity called SFAC and they've done incredible work over the last, I think it's 20 years, um, helping organizations move from an orphanage model to a family-based care model. Um, and Mick is a social worker um, and he used to work in institutions. So um, I really enjoyed reading about his journey in changing his mind about um, institutions and kind of the incredible work that they've done. Um, so I found that really helpful book. I read a book called Separated by the Border uh, by a lady called Gina Thomas, and it's excellent. It's a U.S. Um, Christian's perspective of being foster mum to a child who is separated from their mother at the U.S. border and some of the ways and lengths she went to kind of reunite that daughter uh, with her mother. And it's it's a powerful, traumatic story, but it will reboot your understanding of what's happening in, uh, I guess, uh, immigration politics and family-based care. Yeah, absolutely. Those are uh, Gina works with the Brian Fickard at the Chalmers Center. So for those of you who know When Helping Hurts, that's the same organization that uh, you know put that book out. Uh, Mick, you know that's actually I talk about Ellie. I think she recommended that book as well. Uh, Mick's book. Mick was actually the first interview on this podcast, which is a little known wow. fact. We didn't release it first, but it was the first interview I did. So let's just say it wasn't uh, quite as smooth as this one. But that's okay because Mick is an amazing man and he made up for it. So um, it was uh, such a great book and I, I second that. I haven't read uh, Gina's book yet, but I definitely need to pick that up and, and check it out. So uh, the last thing, you know, uh, we, we talk about is, you know, what, what person has, has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Um, and, uh, you know, it can be a group of people as well. But uh, you know, how would you answer that, Rebecca? Um, I'd definitely say McPeace um, is would be one of those people. Um, I've connected with SFAC and with Mick um, several times over the past year. So just learning from their experience has been great. And then for me as well, Rebecca Nepp from the Better Care Network. Um, she's just brilliant and has so much knowledge and so much expertise. So I've learned a lot from her. Um, yeah, those would be. Sorry, I gave, I gave you two people. That's okay. That's okay because those are two great folks. So I, I definitely have been impacted by them as well. So, Chris, you yeah, got yeah. anybody? I'd echo that. I'd echo that. Sarah Gesserick, who you know well. Um, also, Delia Pop. Mm-hmm. And she's just 
one of the world's experts on deinstitutionalization. Uh, all brilliant people. And of course, you, Phil, with this podcast. Thanks for making it, mate. Uh, you've really helped spread a vision and an understanding around family-based care. So God bless you and all the work that you do. Well, I, I'm really excited to, to hear the four people you guys mentioned all have been on the show. So that's uh, – and, you know, Rebecca, I, I don't know if you and Chris are going to have to talk afterwards because you didn't mention him. But, you know, that's okay because you talked about him early on in the show. So, um, <laughs> no, but – uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the collaboration. I mean, you guys have a collaborative uh, spirit, and you guys live it out every every day. And I I very much appreciate that. Very much appreciate what we talked about on the show. And I, I just uh, encourage you to keep keep going, keep at it. Amazing. Thank you. God bless you. See yep. you soon. All right. Bye bye. Well, thanks again to Krish and Rebecca. You know, every time, you, know, you guys folks know out there that I, I love accents. So right there we got South Africa. And, you know, Krish, as we learned before, kind of has a mix of an accent of all kinds of different stuff. But it's, you know, obviously majority of the UK. So, um, you know, more than that, they had some great stuff to share. And I know that, uh, Rick, you... You had some things that really stuck out to you, so I'd like to just kind of throw it your way because most of the time you guys hear a little bit of my thoughts during the interview. So, Rick, what would what, you think about it? Yeah, you know, Phil, I, I think the, the thing that I was most struck by, and, and obviously there's, there's a lot to, to unpack from the things they had to say, but was, uh, was hugely impressed and, and about just the things that they had to say relative to permanency. Uh, you know, Chris made a made a comment in the in the midst of the interview about uh, you know some of the some of the family based care models that we have have constructed that uh, the place where they really fall short is the fact that 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 they they don't they don't really act like family. You know that they they approximate family, they create an illusion of family while kids are in care. Uh, but the you know the great um, the great leveler there the, the the great you know the great truth is that family based care really only is family based care when it when it gives a kid uh, relationships and stability that they can come back to and that they can you know essentially can uh, can have as a support for you know for their entire lives and and that. Uh, you know we're in real time right now man we're watching that play out in in front of us even you know even right here at home right under our our own noses in uh in the foster care system here in the US um you know one of some of the stories that that are some of the toughest to hear right now are about kids that are you know that have graduated out of foster care who have uh who who've made it that are in college that are you know that are tracking toward a, a degree and a career, and uh, and and are on track to to do well. Who have been sent home from their from their college and have been, you know, forced to move out of their dorm because of coronavirus, and they're homeless because because they have no they have no place to go. And and the fact is that many of them, you know, graduated out of a system where they had food, clothing, and shelter, and 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 probably you know even a lot of support. Um, that that helped them to be able to get to the place they are now. But the thing that they lack is when when push comes to shove, they don't they don't have a place to belong forever. And uh, and and I think it was just a great reminder to me that and, and and something that I think we 
you know, we have to consider as we're thinking about what sorts sorts of models of care that we uh, you know that we champion and those things that we that we invest in we want to invest in those things and 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 do those things that that give a you know give a kid a place to belong um, for their whole life and 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 that, that will create those supportive environments and that's that's part of what our definition of family-based care has to you know has to include absolutely you know, I mean, that's something that we talk about a lot on this show. And we also, you know, talk a lot about it when we're not on the show <laughs> as well is, you know, we don't want to create solutions that are just going to add to the problem, right? We don't want to, you know, create solutions that will just create different issues in the kids' lives, right? You don't want to jump out of the frying pad into the fire. So a kid's in an abusive situation and you put them in another situation where they're not going to get all the things they need, but you're just changing the the scenery of the same issues that they're going to be facing and the same trauma that's being created and caused. And, you know, as you said, it, it, we also don't want to just push it down the road. We don't want to kick the can down the road so that they're now experiencing issues at 19, 20, 21, right? We want to make sure that what we're doing is we're creating solutions that are actually helping these children, that are actually giving these children what they need. And as we've learned over time and as we know, I mean, those of us who are Christians are, you know, we know biblically family is where God places the lonely, right? We know that God cares about these kids more than we ever will, right? And so what does that look like for us to join in that? What does that look for, like for us to be able to be a productive part of this? And it's got to include that permanency, that place that is home, that place that people have. As we talk about the importance of place, the importance of home, the importance of family, the importance of having people who you know that when you need something, they're there. When you are, and, it, and it's not just a, a place of, oh, well, there's you know hundreds of people who are in this home and that's my family. Well, that's, that's not the same. It's just not the same as a, as a family. And so, you know, we look at it and go, and that's why I asked the question with him too, is, is there a place for the orphanage? Is there the place for the residential care facilities out there? And, and you know, the answer is yes, but very limited in, in the ideal world, right? Now, we're not in the ideal yet. And you and I, you know, both are watching it as well. In, in India and Kenya, to, to name a couple, are sending kids home right now in the midst of the coronavirus without prepping the families, you know, and that, you know, in the same time I'm seeing in North Texas, there's higher rates of severe child abuse in the midst of this pandemic and the quarantines and the stress and all the other things going on. So we know it's more than just getting kids into a family, into a home, into a place that has people that are there. It needs to be healthy. And so that's what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing is to hopefully help people understand what healthy looks like and how we can get there. Yeah, Phil, I think the other, the other thing that really kind of jumped out during, during the interview for me was um, the brief discussion about short-term missions, you know, and you guys talked a little bit about, um, you know, the whole volunteerism effect and, and those things. And I, I just would want to say that, you know, the, that, that the idea of doing, um, you know, doing good ministry to, to orphan and vulnerable children and, and doing short-term mission trips are not mutually exclusive. 
we, we just have to really think through how we do those things. And, and I think one of the things that, you know, that I've learned and, and something we try to put into, into play at, at Lifeline is um, our, our, you know, a lot of our short-term mission trips are focused on um, those who are, who are loving on and providing on kids 52 weeks a year. And, and there's a way to do this so that people can, people can see the work, people can see the needs of children, they can understand the community, they can get the benefit of everything that short-term missions does for them, but they also can do some things that are inherently really um, very needed and very productive in, in pouring into, in training, in encouragement, in uh, respite, in all kinds of things to provide for um, you know, to provide for people that are, that are doing the work on the ground for caregivers, for, you know, going in and doing enrichment activities. I mean, you're talking about the fact that, you know, part of the challenge we're seeing around the world is that kids are, kids are being sent out of institutional care and sent back into homes where, you know, where they're not prepared. Well, one of the things we can do is we can go in and be a part of the equation of preparing those homes and, and, you know, and, and doing those things. And, it really, you know, for us to continue to do the, the things that we have done in the past that have been so pathological to kids, um, there's, a, there's a bit of just, you know, obstinance and laziness in that that we, that we have to acknowledge and we have to begin to get over. And, and the only way that's going to happen uh, in, in large part is, is the church that is on the other side of the equation that is, that's, 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 funding and sending people and and about that kind of work if we begin to just stand up and refuse and say we're not going to do this anymore we're going to build some parameters around what we will do missionally and and we you know we're forcing the issue that we want short-term missions to look differently yep no absolutely i i have always said there is a place for short-term missions as there is a place for going into different companies and consulting with people as there is a place for using your, you know, expertise to help others. Um, you know, that's something that we can do. And, but then there's also the other side of it where we need to stop doing the things that are hurtful, you know, going in and being caregivers to children, you know, for a couple days is not a healthy thing. You know, um, you know, as you said, there's been instances where people were, you know, uh, going in and, and sending kids home with people sometimes. Like those are, those are some issues, right? That we, we got to separate the really good from the really bad. But as you said, we can go in and we can help equip families. We can help equip the social workers. We can help equip the, the people out there, the psychologists, have clinical psychologists with, with different training and some of the, you know, trauma-informed care training and be able to come in and help with that. You know, those are things that we can be doing, you know. And also there is a place for, seeing what's going on so people can be advocates, but doing that in a way that is healthy. And th those are things that we need to be wise and not, again, not throw the baby out with the bathwater, not say, oh, th this is evil, this is bad, but to say, you know what, there is a place and we need to know what that looks like. And, you know, in this ever-changing world, there are ways we can do mission trips without even going. Yep. Through technology. Yep. Right. And I think right now we're- hey, man, we're pioneering those things exactly. right now. We are realizing that more than ever right now. And honestly, I think these are some of the good things that are going to come out of this. Yeah. People have to get creative. And in getting creative, you realize, okay, you know what? We can have these experiences. Are they the same? Are they ideal? No. But are they effective? Are they way cheaper? Are they way, you know, can they be as effective in some ways? 
Yes, is the answer. And yeah, we don't get that personal experience, but sometimes that personal experience is actually destructive, right? And so how maybe this will help us to, to, to kind of suss out and, and help us understand and have discernment to know which is which, which is the good and which is the destructive a little bit more, you know? And uh, we're going to have a real test right now to say, what does it look like to do this from afar? Because, you know, I, I don't know. And I mean, you're listening to this. Whenever you're listening to this, you may know the answer already. But I don't know that we're going to be doing international travel anytime soon. Um, and that, you know, that may be something that will be a good thing for the long-term uh mission impact as far as us needing to understand what is the what's the essential for us to go and what are the things we can keep doing even if we can't go <clears throat> so rick with that you know there's so much more we could talk about but uh right now i think it's 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 time that we are going to pivot and go to the uh go to the recommendations so the the dr uh, rick today has the recommendation for us. And so, uh, Rick, what do you got for us? Man, just an exciting new book, new resource. It's not actually not a new book, new resource. It's new to me. Um, A book that was written by by a physician who specializes in ministering to kids with with ADHD. Uh, His name is Jim Poole, and he's written a book called Turning ADHD on Its Head. And you know, lest you think that this is kind of a recommendation coming out of left field, I think one of the things that we know in in ministry to orphan and vulnerable children, particularly kids that are coming out of institutionalized backgrounds, is there is a there is a greater prevalence or greater uh, greater number of incidences of kids that are that are diagnosed with ADHD, and uh, and and there's a you know there's kind of a, a phenomenon out there known as institutional ADHD. Um, in other words, that the, the environment that kids have grown up in has really, you know, kind of caused them to think differently and, com- you know, contributed to, um, to a different way of processing. And, and Jim, uh, who, by the way, is the, is the father of a pastor, Matthew Poole, at Harvest Church in Cary, North Carolina, who's a, who's a friend of mine, is, is one of Jim's sons and um, very much is, is part of this equation as well. But Jim has really pioneered a, a, a way of approaching ADHD that, that looks at it not as a deficit, looks at it not as a, um, as a you know, even a, a, a mental defect, but, uh, and, and those are his words, by the way, not mine. Um, he, he looks at it as something that doesn't belong listed in the DSM-5 and, and that we treat, we treat as, a, as a deficit, but rather that it's just a, it's just a different capacity. And, uh, you know, one of the things Jim says in his book is that, that most ADHD kids, uh, by the time they're 12 years old, have heard 20,000 more negative messages than positive messages. And that we really have, have done a lot to stigmatize the behavior that comes out of kids who have what he calls a fast brain. And so he's, uh, he's actually developed uh, the fast brain method uh, and has kind of a whole different way of looking at ADHD. Um, and, and, and he gives some insight into ways that we can change the schooling environment, ways that we can approach our kids differently, and ultimately how we can help them to see that even ADHD is something God can use, um, that this is a capacity that they have, and that it can be shaped and molded and, uh, and fostered in a way that great good 
can can come from that. His his website is fastbrain.com, but it's fastbrain with two eyes. And part of the funny story about this is Jim himself is uh, self-avowed as as an ADHD uh, mind, and and he said he woke up and had this idea after he started uh, started researching ADHD and 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 wrote down the the, the trademark for this and misspelled it and like literally made a made a, a website uh, a, a URL claim and a and a uh, and a and a trademark application in the middle of the night with two eyes and so he just kept it. Um, and it's kind of a funny story that, you know, that leads back. But I, I think for as a parent who has a couple of kids who, um, you know, who continue to process differently because of ADHD, I've been just incredibly encouraged by what Jim has to say about. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's even this week as I've had a little bit of time to to read made me rethink some of the strategies for parenting and some of the things we're doing educationally with our kids. And so as you're, you know, stuck at home, maybe in self quarantine or sheltering in place and, um, you know, and also looking for, for ways to, uh, to help your kids in what they're doing in schooling, um, go pick up, turn an ADHD on its head by, uh, by Dr. Jim pool. And, uh, that can be found on Amazon and you can, you can get it as a Kindle book and have it today. Yeah. Now that's so good. And, you know, and that kind of, that fits right into what we were talking about today too, right? You know, the importance of family and permanency and people that know you and understand you. Because if you have just a mass group of kids, you can't possibly understand that and the differences and be able to individualize the conversations and the treatment and the, the education and whatever it may be, right? You know, um, I, I may have been diagnosed ADHD if they had it back in the day. I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe not. But, uh, you know, it, it is. It's interesting that so much research on the fast brain versus the slower brains, and it's not that one's bad or one's good. It's just we process differently. And it's so, and we need both. We need both. Um, and, and that's the more I study human behavior, the more I teach and train on it, the more even right now we're having basically a Petri dish in our home on, on human behavior and the models and to see how different people process even quarantine, right? I'm sure folks out there, those of you who have multiple kids, and even if your husband or wife is, is the opposite of you, you know, you know what it looks like even in this little bit of how we even process being at home. Uh, for a couple weeks and three, maybe four weeks, who knows? But it's uh, so important, so important that we understand that. And uh, so, folks out there, you know, with with that, you know, there there's a lot of good recommendations on the show today. There were a lot of uh, just good conversations, some great content, and I just pray that you take it all and you use it along with all the other things you're learning, and you use it to help you to understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.